In this edition of Playing Crazy Down Under, we take a look at the defence sector. With new challenges potentially on the horizon and with the release of the latest Defence Strategic Review, how will the ADF reorganise and what new equipment will they have at their disposal? Senior Defence Writer Andrew McLaughlin joins us for an extended discussion. Well, hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This is, of course, the program that brings you the news, the interviews and the stories from around Australia's aviation scene. I'm Steve Fisher. It's great to be back with you and joining me, of course, is Grant McCarran. Mate, uh, how's things, my friend? Hey, not bad, buddy. How are you doing? Yeah, doing very well. And, uh, you know, uh, we're going to get uh, technical and all serious in this one. Uh, of course, uh, over the journey, our show, uh, through a lot of hard work, has been able to enjoy a, a pretty solid reputation with the Australian Defence Force uh, across all branches. And uh, over the years, we've been able to attract guests and uh, really experts in their field from that sector to share their thoughts and experiences, etc., with our audience. And along with that, uh, we've also been pretty fortunate to have been able to engage with some of the defence sector's most experienced and, uh, well, frankly, high-profile journalists. And uh, as we're uh, now into this, this new series, uh, we thought it's time that we started uh, re-engaging with the defence sector, particularly from an aviation standpoint, and just seeing how things are tracking. Joining us this week is uh, award-winning journalist and defence writer for Region Media, Andrew McLaughlin. Andrew, welcome back to the show. Oh, guys, it's great to be here. It's been too long. I know, right? Yeah, it has. It's, it feels like it's been forever since you and I did Pitch Black 2014 with the game. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a great trip that was. Oh, that was an experience. And we're not just talking about alcohol. That was just nah. ex- incredible. Yep. That was a great trip. Yeah. So, Andrew, um, of course, we've got you on because we want to talk about the uh, Defence Strategic Review. Try saying that uh, three times quickly. <laughs> I always seem to trip over that. So we will, for the rest of this episode, call it the DSR, which, DSR. Is, <laughs> which has just been uh, recently released uh, by the federal government. And uh, this uh, this one's been a really interesting one, hasn't it? Uh, it's, it's been one of those – this is a, a normal process of government, something they do uh, from time to time. But uh, there's, uh, there's actually been some, uh, some really interesting changes here. And I think uh, perhaps if you were part of the Australian Army, you might be perhaps quite happy, uh, you know, with some of the changes or maybe not. But uh, we want to sort of keep this discussion here as much as we can on track with how uh, the DSR in this case may affect defence aviation. Absolutely. It, ha- it has been a, um, an interesting process. And don't forget, we've only seen the unclassified version. We don't really know what's going on behind the scenes and um you know, I guess it's the same with the Integrated Investment Plan, which has been around <laughs> since 2016, which replaced the Defence Capability Plan. It was supposed to be a living document, obviously, but um, none of the changes that have been made to it since 2016 have been made public. Um, we obviously know, you know, some of the, the larger capital programs, but um, there's a lot of small and medium programs we know very little about. And I think that'll be the case going forward with the DSR and whatever that rolls into in, in any updates of the in integrated investment program. Well, let's can we start with just for those who may not know, what is a defence strategic review? Well, okay, it was basically used as a policy advice paper. Um, the government um, commissioned it, the, the new Labor government commissioned it um, because they've been out of power for the best part of a decade. They wanted to review the integrated investment plan that the previous government had put together and had well, had not put together, but had endorsed, uh, just to see if we were on the right track compared to whatever regional threats are out there. Um, and the unclassified, well, the, the classified version was delivered uh, on uh, Valentine's Day this year, and the unclassified version was uh, released about three weeks ago. Um, and the government has accepted all of the recommendations from the unclassified version. 
so it, I think it's more of a policy paper than um, an actual strategic document. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it, it really doesn't have the detail. Again, we're, we're only seeing the unclassed version, but I don't think it has the detail required for a strategic document. And some parts have agreed in principle, which means they'll look at it more next exactly. year when they do another review. Well, yeah, and, and, and the, the DSR did actually recommend other reviews to take place, such as the uh, the Navy's um, fleet fleet uh, major surface um, asset review. So whether we have the right number of destroyers and frigates and and OPVs going forward. Yep. So. Well, we do live at a time uh, as we record this in 2023 where we've we've come through a period of you know what some might say is some uh, serious geopolitical change, particularly in our part of the world. What I'm curious to know is, do you think that from a broad uh, viewpoint, are we looking here at a, a, a perhaps a change, you know, something that's signalling a change in defence posture? Of course, the ADF has always been exactly that, a defence force. Are we now looking at perhaps a change in potential change in policy that way? Are we looking perhaps, you know, at uh, force protection, for example, is something that I hear starting to be banded around? There is an offensive aspect to it um, in terms of the long-range strike weapons that are coming, especially the air-launched versions. Um, but I think um, it's it's also a little bit of back to the future. When you go back to um, Paul Dibbs' uh, white paper in, gee, I think the late 80s, where he talked about the air-sea gap, uh, defending the air-sea gap between Australia and, I guess, the Northern Islands, being Indonesia, PNG, up to the Philippines, South China Sea. Um, uh, that kind of went away in the 90s and, and, and noughties, and it's kind of come back now because that's obviously – the direction that we that it's considered the threat will come from. Mm. So, um, you know, the, the land attack and the anti-ship missiles that we're looking at buying, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about later, um, really are, you know, they're four, five, six, eight hundred kilometre weapons, which will pretty much cover anything that can launch out of Darwin or Tyndall, fly out to its combat radius, and then launch a missile. So that 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 pretty much covers that air-sea gap that they've talked about for mm. geez, 40 years now. You know, there's, there's been a few who have been like, haven't they learned anything from Ukraine? You know, we've cut back on in- infantry fighting vehicles. We've cut back on self-propelled howitzers. We are getting HIMARS. We're likely to get for Army the coastal defence version of the um, NSM, the Naval Strike Missile, uh, because that's really handy for keeping ships at bay. It seems like the DSR is all about keeping anyone from getting to Australia rather than fighting on our terrain or an ally's terrain. HIMARS in its current form, I don't think will do that. But once the PRISM missile, the, the mm. precision strike missile, which is under development now by Lockheed Martin, um, they're talking about sort of a couple of iterations down the track will have a an anti-ship capability. Mm. But the um, NSM, that, yeah. Well, the, the, yeah, the prison, but this is going a lot, lot further than an NSM will, and it, and it'll come down in a ballistic trajectory, and it, it's a bigger, bigger weapon than an NSM. An, an NSM will go, I don't know, it's it's classified how far it'll go, but I'm guessing 150 to 200 kilometres. Okay, but a prism actually breaks the previously mandated treaty distance of 499 kilometres. They say it'll go 499 kilometres, but. <laughs> They're talking a thousand kilometres at the moment with with that thing, and and the prism is basically an ex, a bigger version of the Atacams ATACMS missile, which can be launched from the HIMARS launcher. So I think that's 
where we're headed with HOMAS. Obviously, we'll, we will have the land strike, uh, the GL, MRS and, and the Atticums missiles as well, but they've only got a range from, I think, 80 out to about, what is it, 200 kilometres, something like that. So okay. I mean, when I say only, um, in inverted commas, it's obviously is still a, f- a much more potent capability than anything we've got now. Um, but it, it, HIMARS in its basic form seems a little bit anachronistic when we're getting rid of armoured vehicles because we don't see ourselves holding or taking and holding territory in the future. But HIMARS really is kind of what that's all about. So hmm. I think the main game is PRISM going forward. Okay. Let's bring it back to our, our friends at the RAF, the RAAF. Yep. There wasn't a lot in the DSR about the RAF. It seems like the DSR tacitly is saying that the RAF have got it right with their current and future planned platforms. Would you concur with that? Yeah, I think so. Now, obviously, B-21 was mentioned. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there was a lot of rumour and, and innuendo about B-21 coming out of various think tanks and and, and policy advisory organisations and even the media. Um, but B-21 is an exquisite capability. We, we could never afford more than, I don't know, 10, a dozen of the things mm. How are we going to sustain and operate that thing? Okay, for a start, it hasn't even flown yet. <laughs> one little detail. It is a little detail. <laughs> and so we're not going to see one to be remotely available to Australia for let's, the best part of a decade. Yep. So to have B21 in this DSR would have been a bit silly. Mm-hmm. Um, we then need to be able to crew it on top of F35, Super Hornets, Growlers, P8s, all the other yep. frontline combat capabilities um but the other thing that was missing from but i mean the dsr didn't going back to the b21 for a moment the dsr didn't rule out the b21 it just said not now Mm. and northrop grumman i noticed has doubled down on that in part of their uh, they put out a media release yeah not now but maybe in the future Mm -hmm. um as has the head of the u.s air forces air combat command so um who knows a decade's time there may be something there. But I think what we'll see before then is US Air Force B-52s and B-2s, you know, staging out of Tyndall yep. as part of their yep. uh, AF rotations to Guam. Yeah. Um, that really needs to be, if they are sort of working towards a, a posture that we think they're going to be wanting to work towards, that really, mm-hmm. I mean, the timeframes we're talking about here, the time to acquire this new technology, whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, whatever platform it is, we've got to acquire it, we've got to, train people to use it. We've got to be able to stand up exactly. operational squadrons to, to operate whatever equipment it would be. I mean, can we afford to wait? I mean, the timelines no. they're talking, mm. can we afford to wait that long? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're talking about something kicking off in the next three to five years. We're not going to get a B-21 until 10, 12, mm. 14 years at an operational capability. So we can we can just push B-21 aside for now. But th- what I found was interesting was there was absolutely no mention whatsoever of Air 6000 Phase 7, which is the last tranche of F-35s, which suggests to me that we're going to retain the Super Hornets and we're going to upgrade them. So we've already... We've already ordered new fusion engines and data links for the Super Hornets, which are being developed for the US Navy's Super Hornet Block 3 and Growler Block 2. Um, so I I would – and we're also going to integrate, integrate LRASM, JASM ER. So my reading of that is we're probably going to go the whole US Navy Block 3 upgrade with the new displays, um, a life uh, – maybe an airframe extension. I don't know – 
what our airframes are at at the moment. I, th- I, th- I would suggest they're probably a little low, lower than the US Navy's, and they've been used differently. We don't bang them down on carriers, no. for example. <laughs> we do a lot more BFM with ours than they, the US does. Mm. So, um, you know, our, our, it's the same with the classic Hornet when we did the um, the centre barrel and and the um, the Hug three point two work on 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 our classic Hornets. They they did a dozen of them, or I think they did ten or eleven of them, and then they found, well, hang on, we're replacing stuff that doesn't need need to be replaced, and yet there's other stuff that does need to be replaced where there's no there's no kit involved, there's no kit available to do that. So we had to develop something ourselves. I suggest with our supers, it's going to be the same. Although our supers do have a genuine six thousand hour fatigue life, whereas the classics were advertised as being that, but they ran out of gas at four and a half thousand hours. So. Um, well, it's something that we've always had to do here, isn't it? Because obviously we're not a we don't have a, a military the size of say the US, well, exactly. and we don't have the economic ability to be able to create anything close to that. So we've always had to be yeah. smart, haven't we, with the way we use it, whatever platform we have. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you've got four hundred and fifty five hundred super hornets, you can afford to have twenty or thirty or forty of them sort of pushed against the fence and being Christmas treed. Mm. We've got twenty four. Yeah, we can't afford that. We need twenty four available. Yeah. Well, we need twenty available. Yeah, you know, at any one time there'll probably be three or four in, in some kind of deep or medium level maintenance, but we need to be able to generate twenty jets if 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 it all hits the fan. So, well, that probably begs the other question: Is seventy two F thirty fives enough? <sighs> probably not. Hmm. Um, I mean, w- when we signed up as a a partner, we basically committed to a hundred, and the work shares that our industry has received from the JSF program office has been based on us taking 100 jets. Now, I don't think that'll be effective because a lot of other countries have cut back and then there's been a lot more FMS customers than they than they thought there would be and a lot of those countries have picked up work, countries like Israel, Poland, um, you know, countries like that. So um, I, I, I think there's enough work to go around, so I don't think we'll be penalised in any way in terms of the industry output. But the other thing is being able to man them. You know, we've always only been able to man 100 combat jets. You know, it's been it was 75 Hornets and there was 24 F-111s. At the moment, we've got 72. We'll soon have 72 F-35s. We've got 24 Super Hornets. We've got 12 Growlers. So that's 108. Yeah. So we're already a little over. And if we went to another 28 F-35s, how are we going to crew them? You know, we're losing crews at the moment. We're not gaining them. We're not growing the Air Force. That's a question for defence in general. Yeah, and that and is, that's something I know you want to talk about, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got platforms like Navy ships that can't go to sea because there's not enough people. And we're seeing defence push sustainment below the line, like the power by the hour for the Hawk and the new defence maintenance contract for Army. Uh, it seems almost like defence needs to push everything routine below the line, as they say. For those who don't know, below the line, above the line, you've got this mythical line where above the line is uniform and um, Australian public service. And below the line is all your contractors like your Tullis, your Lockmarts, your Northrop Grumman's, Boeing's, etc. And they seem to be pushing so that you've got a person or a small group of people coordinating and managing one or more vendors doing all the work as opposed to the past where we'd have logistics people all through defence and so on. is Do you think that could be a solution to this problem that we've mentioned a couple of times now? Well, look, I think the power by the hour or, or the um, capability um, manager type model has its merits. Um, I don't know if it has its merits for an air combat fleet. 
because you just need to throw whatever you can at that. But for things, you know, for example, you, you mentioned Northrop Grumman there, that they look after the C-27J, the KC-30 and the SPA, the VIP aircraft fleets. And and they are incentivized to have as much availability as, 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 as they can. Now, they have a, a, a budgeted amount of flying hours per year. And if they meet that, they have an incentive. If they fall below that, they don't make the incentive. And so that goes straight to the bottom line or, or to the profit margin. Yeah. Um, C27J's had its issues, and I know we're not going to talk about it, this issue, this this series, but um, um, but KC30 is another one that's important. And I think KC30 is probably a marginal capability for that kind of thing uh, because you need to have as many tankers as you can. Um, now, I know it's an airline. It's based on an airliner. An airliner is designed to fly for 100,000 hours and God knows how many cycles and be available 96% of the time. And the KC30 had its troubles in the early days but is now – you know, not close to, but is is not close to airliner standards, but is certainly meeting its budget of flying hours. So um, they seem to be doing the right thing there. But so well with the links, so it, it has its, yeah, it has its merits, but I don't know if I would apply that across all the the combat aircraft. Like. No, no, the 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 A three also the the KC thirty, the E seven, etc. Are more of a support, and you can't do it without them, kind of thing. But they're not the Correct. front line directly. Correct. But you know what they say: there's no kicking ass without tanker gas. So, <laughs> and, um, and you, you need a tanker up there. We haven't, we haven't, and that's something that I was hoping would be in the DSR was more KC-30s because that is something we sorely need. The kind of distances we're talking about, we want to start throwing JASMs and LRASMs downrange. We need to get out beyond the archipelagos ahead, uh, and we can't do that with seven tankers. Uh, but that is becoming they become a target as well during some of the red flag exercises. For instance, during red flag 2014, oh, look, well, an AWACS got shot down. Yeah. And <laughs> and that's and I think we're going to talk about the uh, ghost bat a little bit later on, mm. and I think that's where that kind of thing comes mm-hmm. in. Loyal, the loyal wingman. Yep. Yeah. Just uh, before we go to the break here, Andrew, just harking back to recruitment, was, was that issue um, canvassed very much in this DSR? There was nothing really new in it. Um, the the Morrison government in 2020 put out a, a big a big I can't remember what it was called but it was it was a big statement and they they wanted to increase uniform personnel from the current I think 71,000 to 100,000. Um, I've seen no no concrete plans on how they're going to they're going to achieve that from the Morrison government nor from the current government. The closest you've got is the retention bonus thing, and and that's really only aimed at pilots and. You know, uh, certain specific it. APS as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High, high, but that's retention. That's not recruitment. That's that's that, and Navy Navy tried that recruitment ad for a little while, but I think I don't know where that's gone. That, that kind of disappeared not long after the AUKUS announcement. So I'm not sure what's happening there. Navy's recruitment is way better than the Air Force. I know my niece was wanting to go in the Air Force, and they Air Force recruiting stuffed around. Navy snapped her up for the gap year. She's now very happy in Navy. Problem is, it's it the, the first line of defence in the recruitment angle is uh, a contracted agency, a contracted company. Before you get to talk to anyone in uniform, mm-hmm. and even then, you know, there's a lot of oversight from the, the contracted agency. So it, it's it's not controlled by defence um, until you get to having sat the various aptitude tests mm-hmm. and exams, and that's when defence really takes over. Um, and even then, I mean, I, I know a guy who went into the flight flying training wanting to be a, a pilot in the air force and ended up being streamed onto helicopters in the navy um so he really had to change services halfway through bfs so 
BFTS. So it's it's interesting. Well, uh, Air Force platforms, Navy platforms, and what does this mean for the Army? Uh, there's lots to talk about when we come to talking about the recently released DSR, as I'm just going to call it, because I can't uh, get the name right anytime <laughs> I say it. This is Playing Crazy Down Under. We're here with defence writer for Region Media, Andrew McLaughlin. Stick around, folks. We'll be right back after this. Look, let's be honest, sir. We've all got to eat. That we do, Kevin. Food is such a big part of life, isn't it? And talking about food can lead us to all sorts of places and all sorts of people. Yep. And every week on the Food Bites podcast, we catch up with someone who might be a TV celebrity, mm. a high-profile sports star, a politician, could be anyone. Yeah. And we talk to them about food, their kitchen skills, or, you know, sometimes lack of, uh, life and, and love. And, Kevin, every week there's the Friday Food Poll. Oh, yes. Now, that is Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and me, Kevin Hillier. You can find us wherever you find your favourite podcast and, of course, every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock on the Ace Radio Network. Keeping up to date with the latest news is a huge part of our daily lives. Now you can have news on demand with the Australian Independent Radio News app. News and sport in your pocket whenever you want it. Wherever you are in the world, if you call Australia home, you can stay in touch with the Air News app. Download it now for news on the go. This is Air News. 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 Australian Independent Radio News. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, we're getting very serious this week, Grant. We're uh, talking uh, defence and there's been a lot of news defence-wise that's been coming out as we record this in the middle of 2023. A special guest from Region Media is their defence writer, Andrew McLaughlin. You've alluded there to a new platform called the Ghost Bat. Perhaps you could explain to our listeners uh, just exactly what that is. Yeah, so Ghostbat is, uh, it was originally called the Loyal Wingman. That, that that has gone away a little bit now because it was originally, I think, um, pitched as an attritable, which means you can, you can, you're happy to lose one if it saves something of more value, such as an AEWNC or a tanker or even a, a, something like a Growler or, or a, uh, an F-35. Um, I think that Wording has gone away a little bit um, to align a little bit more with the US programs. Now, the US has got a couple of programs. They've got a an unclass program at the moment for which General Atomics, Boeing with their American version of the Ghost Bat and uh, Kratos um, are pitching for. But I think they've also got something a little bit special in the in the grey to dark grey to black world, which we probably won't know about for decades. Um, and the these aircraft are designed to go out with um, a, a, an air combat force um, and either have an, an, electro, an electronic warfare payload, um, have a payload of um, decoys, um, or, uh, decoy missiles or even air-to-air missiles to clear a path or anti-radiation missiles to, to take on an integrated air, air and de- missile defence system. Um, but uh, there is also a secondary role in that a couple of these things will fly along with a wedge tail, a KC-30, and if necessary, sacrifice themselves um, or distract or however they do it, um, uh, any kind of threat to those um, to those aircraft. Uh, because, you know, the, the adversaries in our region and elsewhere are getting longer and longer air-to-air missiles, long-range air-to-air missiles, you know, 200-kilometre-plus range, and aircraft that are designed specifically to take out high-value assets like 
wedge trails and KC-30s. Swarm your way through the frontline defences, get past them, take out the KC-30s, take out the E-7s. There goes your eyes. There goes your ability to project further away. And this whole loyal wingman thing has become a concept. It was The ghost bat was the concept of the loyal wingman, but now it's expanded and uh, everyone's got one now from China, Turkey, Russia. They're all working on this loyal wingman, which is basically – referring to, as you said, the drones that that support. But we've also got, of course, the uh, Triton going through, the MQ-4. I believe it's the MQ-4C. MQ-4C. Yep. And so some of us were expecting that we might get a few more Tritons announced and a few, like you were talking before, a few more F-35s. But they don't seem to have added any more. Triton's looking pretty solid. But unfortunately, there's, you know, relatively as much as anything is these days, but there's been no joy for the MQ-9B. The Air 7003 looks completely dead. Yeah, look, there, there's a, a fairly strong feeling amongst some, some elements in Air Force that the, 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 the Reaper, the Predator, um, is not survivable. Mm. Um, now, look, if you're going to buy hundreds of them, you can afford to lose a few. But if you're going to have fewer than 20, that your fleet will not last long at all. Um, so you're not going to go downtown with one with a Hellfire with an eight-kilometer range. Um, so you need to either have longer-range sensors or longer-range effectors on that on that system, or it's just not going to survive. Um, it's it's slow. It's not manoeuvrable. Um, it, it's incredibly capable in a benign environment, but if there's any kind of air threat, um, either ground or air-based. It's it's I won't say it's a dead duck, but it's it's not survivable. But that's why they're now bringing in the MQ9C, which has got a bit more stealth, and they're working on, dare I say, it, loyal wingmen for drones. They've they're talking about the MQ9C being able to launch some long range stuff. Yeah, so um, you're talking about General Atomic's jet powered, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, drone. Yeah, I don't think it's called MQ9C, but I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, uh, I think it's MQ. 20, MQ20 from memory, but um, um, yeah, but they will be carrying carrying podded their own little podded drones. Um, now those I, I think are more likely to be decoy type drones. I don't think they will have any kind of effect, but they can go out ahead of uh, you know an air combat force and you know turn turn all the music on and make it look like there's a much bigger force than actually is coming, or send them off on a different a different tangent into a target from where the main force is coming from. You know the main force stays quiet. These things come in at a different from a different vector with make all the music noise. Playing. Yeah, exactly, um, and and basically distract the effect the, the defences, make the defences light up, turn everything on, and then they send a few, and then the main force sends a few harms downrange, and um, yeah, yeah. Silences them. So I think that's the theory. Um, I, I haven't, I have to be honest. I haven't read a lot about it in recent times because the new publication I'm writing for probably isn't looking at for that much detail. Um, but uh, yeah, but being jet powered and, and a little more stealthier than the uh, the, the, the Predator Reaper, um, it certainly uh, will have its benefits there. That's for sure. But I mean, Andrew, a lot of this comes back to a concept that they've been working on within the RAF for more than ten years now, which is that of a networked battle space. It's very much. Uh, around the idea of uh, how the F thirty five is is intended to work, isn't it? It's 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 got eyes. It's got all all this sense of fusion that they talk about all the time. I guess one question I have is if if it came to a shooting war, you know, in the next five six years, as Grant mentioned there, I think you take one or two of those assets out in the sky. You know, you take a take a wedge tail out, 
I mean, that's really going to degrade that situation fairly quickly for us, I would think. Yeah, especially when you've only got seven of them. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, very very much, Steve. You're, you're right. Um, and, and I think, look, I, I don't think we're not going to go into any kind of conflict by ourselves. Um, and, you know, that was some of the, the, the cries heard over the submarine decision, you know, how are we going to defeat China with eight submarines? Mm. Well, we're not. We're, we're going to take up a little segment of a, a much greater battlefield or area of um, operations and we'll have a small segment in the US and the UK and whoever else will take up the rest. And and that'll be the same with the air, the air thing, with the F-35s and with our tankers and with our um, wedge tails and our growlers. And, you know, we, we are an add-on, we're an adjunct to the US Pacific Air Forces and the US Navy in, in the region, um, and as is Japan, as will be Singapore. You know, well, so I guess that – As is Korea, South Korea. Yeah, well, I mean, I really guess that brings us to major defence agreements that we have in place, um, and, and, of course, most recently we have AUKUS. I mean, are we going to be – does the DSR really pin everything that's doing here around that concept, the AUKUS concept? Look, it, it a little bit. Obviously, the DSR ratified the submarine decision, but – I think more importantly, it, it looked at pillar two of AUKUS, which is going to look at things like hypersonics and quantum computing and uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence and, and, and uncrewed systems and, and, all, and cyber capabilities, things like that. And I think, I mean, obviously, the, the next war is already underway in the cyber, in, mm. in the grey zone, the yep. cyber zone. Um, so we just need to get better at that now, um, defensively and, you know, I know, they won't probably talk about this too much, but offensively as well. We need to be able to hit back. Uh, and they did actually mention that in the DSR, which was quite a revelation. Um, but, yeah, hypersonics and, and, and you know, I, I, I made a few notes about this. Yeah, air-launched hypersonic weapons are going to be a game changer. But as we've seen from what the, the US is doing, hypersonics is really hard. And I think the first hypersonic capability we're going to have is a defensive capability. Um, and, and part of the Air 6500 program, which is the Integrated Air and Missile Defence Program, um, Air 6503 is actually a hypersonic defence capability. So we, we need to get a defensive missile system that, which can defend, defend against hypersonic weapons. Now, whether those are uh, boost glide weapons or whether those are ballistic weapons, you know, I don't know. Um, we, we saw from the Ukraine, I think just last week, where they took out one of those Kinjal missiles, which is basically a, a ballistic weapon. It, it doesn't it doesn't cruise in the atmosphere like a, I guess, the next generation of hypersonic weapons does. It's, it's a ballistic weapon, but a Patriot got one. And the Kinjal was actually apparently, from what I read today, was targeting the Patriot battery. So the Patriot battery actually got it. Now, and it wasn't a Pac-3 MSE, which is the new missile, which has um, a lot better manoeuvring than the old older version missiles, which is what the Ukraine has. So, um, and Air 6502 is a medium-range ground ground ground-based air defence system, and that will likely be a Patriot-type capability. So, um, whether they evolve into each other, I don't know, um, or whether they can get use the existing Patriot. And, or even the um, the land 197B, the uh, the short range, uh, use the radars that CEA Technologies developed for that, and and evolve those or grow those into the next phases of that program. Yeah, uh, will be interesting. Yeah, I suspect they probably can. 
we caught up with the CEA guys, um, well, some of the RAFIs using it at Avalon because they had one of those CEA radar systems on display there. It's very interesting what they can do. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it's world-leading. Yes. And and actually, getting back to AUKUS Pillar 2 for a moment, a lot of those capabilities outlined in AUKUS Pillar 2, are, there are Australian companies that are world-leading mm. in those capabilities. So it'll be very interesting to see how much of the stuff goes to the UK and goes to the US from Australia. If it came down to a question of immediacy of supply, though, I mean, I mean, yeah. one of the greatest mistakes I think we ever made in this country was shutting down our 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 car industry because there was so much heavy manufacturing, not only in the car manufacturing directly, but obviously all the, you know, third-party suppliers around the place. I mean, a lot of that stuff is gone now. So do we have to balance that up against buying stuff off the shelf so we can get it here in some sort of reasonable time frame versus, well, whilst we're perhaps building up some sort of manufacturing base again to supply what we need? Yeah. I mean, this is probably a little away from the car thing, but, you know, the, the, the previous government, um, outline the glow, the guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise, the GUAO they call it, where they wanted to be able to develop a manufacturing capability in Australia for advanced precision weapons. Now that could be anything from a JDAM up to a, um, a you know a, a prism, and everything in between. You know all the all the stuff that HIMARS can shoot and AMRAMs and LRASM and JASM and things like that. Now. That 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 was a massive. Re- uh, what I th- I thought at the time was a massive overreach because while I think we have the skills in Australia to do it, how are we going to navigate the US system in, in the, the bureaucratic system that they would release that technology to us? They can give us a, a closed missile, which we can put a warhead on or a rocket motor on it out at Orchard Hills where they they're kept. But you know you're not going to be able to get in and and. You can't. You, you cannot access the brains of those systems, you, you, the guidance systems, the, the the data links. You can't access them. They they come as a closed case package. So how are we going to be able to ne- negotiate that with the US? Yep, especially with all the security clearances and everything exactly. that they run. And if there's one thing the conflict in Ukraine has shown us, you need as much ammunition, be it shells, missiles, whatever. You need as much as you can get. So if we've got certain groups blockading our sea lanes, making it impossible for exactly. us to get, oh, I don't know, a tanker of oil, a bunch of munitions and all that through. We're going to have to build it locally. And we did this during World War II. And there's a lot of similarities right now about we're all buying American, you know, oh, we're ditching the Taipan and the and the Tiger and going with Apache and Blackhawk because, you know, no one got sacked for buying American, you could say. But um, this is just like the 30s when there was shock, horror and condemnation when we didn't buy British, we went to the US and we got the Wiraway, which is based on the North American NA-16, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost like we're facing that now with South Korea, which has got some amazing gear. Poland's buying a stack of their self-propelled howitzers, all this kind of stuff. We need to be able to build this stuff on the presumption that we've got no access to anyone outside us. How are we going to do that? Yeah, we do. We and and Poland probably has. Oh, sorry, Poland. South Korea probably has the right to feel a little bit um, aggrieved after the DSR by, you know, c- cutting the infantry fighting vehicle from four fifty to one hundred and thirty, one hundred twenty nine units, and which they may not even win. And then the um, the howitzers as well, mm-hmm. cutting a regiment out of howitzers. So it's what's that forty fifty vehicles. So um, they are building. 
so what, 30, uh, 45 vehicles at a, a brand new factory in Avalon, and then what? But that, no, no, no. They've they've gone. They've said even if Australia doesn't buy them, they're still doing that factory because Poland has bought up the entire capab. Sorry, Poland has bought up the entire production capability yep. in South Korea of self-propelled howitzers for the next few years. They need the capability. This is the their third production line, and it's here in Australia. Regardless gotcha. of whether Australia buys anything, they are going to be here building. Okay, well that that's that's probably um, that that's a good thing then, yeah, and and using an Australian workforce too, mm-hmm. which is great, and and you know they, all those workers need to buy petrol on the way to work and and eat at Lunch. the local mm. takeaway and, and all that sort of stuff. So that that's a good thing. Yeah, but it's it's how do we do these long range strike missiles? And we know that missiles aren't everything. Otherwise, Russia would have taken out Ukraine by now because they've been saying like they've been lobbing more missiles than we've seen in decades. Yeah, they've. Yeah, but I don't think the Russian missiles are as good as we were led to believe they might have been at the start of the war. So you know, they are interceptable, shall we say? So, um, which has been proven. And um, yeah, so I think. Um, well, let, let's get to missiles for a moment. Then you know, I think armies obviously can be a little bit grieved by losing all these um, these armored vehicles, but um, they're getting a couple of missile regiments in exchange. So. They're still going to have the same amount of people. They're just going to be totally changing the way they do things. You know, they've they've had to become a lot more amphibious in recent years, um, and now they're going to be um, a, lot, a lot more artillery regiments as opposed to cavalry regiments. So, and they're also getting their sexy new helicopters. So, winning for army. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, guys. There's just so much to talk about uh, coming out of this review, and uh, we haven't even really touched on army aviation yet. Let's head off to a break now. We're going to run the show a little bit longer than normal. This is Plane Crazy Down Under. We'll be right back after this. Wouldn't it be nice to tune into a station that spins the tracks that you can sing along to? Like this. Money for nothing and your cheeks free. Or how about this? Make it real or else forget about it. The Buzz, streaming classic hits from the 70s, 80s and 90s at thebuzz.com.au or download the app for iPhone or Android. Melbourne's home of classic hits, live from Studio B, The Buzz, B-U-Triple-Z. Is your company in the aviation industry? Advertising your business on our podcasts is an easy and inexpensive way of reaching the growing online aviation community. Whether a conversational infomercial or radio-style ad, we can produce advertisements tailored to your target market and budget. We can also use your own pre-produced commercial. With an audience of pilots, professionals and enthusiasts across the Asia-Pacific region and growing around the world through increasing cross-promotion with other online media, this is a great alternative to traditional advertising. For further information, simply go to our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. Welcome back. You're listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, where this week we're putting the Defence Strategic Review under the microscope. Andrew McLaughlin is with us. And uh, Andrew, we've talked a lot about how this affects the Air Force and, and more broadly about how the, the DSR interacts with you know the broad spread of, of uh, the Defence Force. But let's talk Army and let's talk Army helicopters. There's been quite a lot mentioned in the DSR about uh, replacing uh, several parts of their fleet. Yeah, so um, the Tiger Arm Reconnaissance Helicopter and the MRH-90 Taipan uh, utility hop helicopter are, are pretty much going to um, be phased out in the next couple of years and um, replaced with the Apache 
and the Blackhawk. Now, we're obviously very familiar with Blackhawks. We've had them in service since the mid-80s. Mid sorry, They retired two years ago. Um, and then the Apache was actually – it was a loser against the Tiger, what, 25 years ago. So um, – it's 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 funny, you know. Let's let's talk about the tiger for a moment. The tiger availability is reportedly a lot better now than when the decision to ditch it was taken. Yep. Um, but it just seems there was just too much hate for it, and a lot of that was political. Um, I don't know why. A lot of the, the the operators that I've spoken to, they love the thing. It's an, it's a very capable. It's finally helicopter. brilliant, and yeah. they're axing it. It's like, guys, it, it actually it actually always was brilliant. Mm. It just they couldn't generate enough of them. Brilliant they can. in an Australian concept because we're yeah. finally using it correctly. Yeah. Now, I know Airbus promoted or touted the Mark II. Um, now, I don't think the Mark II Tiger is as, as easy and upgraded as, as, as Airbus said it would be because no one else has done one yet. Um, it's, 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 I don't know if it's vaporware or it's still not going to happen yet. But And plus, um, the Army wanted extra airframes, which had we got those from the French, which the French version of the Tiger is the closest to our ARH, it still would not have had the same baseline configuration. So you would have had a subfleet regardless. Now, but I'm not I'm not sure the Apache is a direct replacement. I mean, the gross weight of it, an Apache is twice that of a Tiger. And it's not designed for maritime operations. We're going to stick these well, things on nor, LHDs. Nor is, the tiger, nor is the Tiger, to be fair. But the Tiger has a largely composite airframe, so it, it is more more able to be treated from a maritime deployment than an Apache would be. And we, we saw that the Brits, when they went to Sierra Leone and, and Libya, they had a lot of trouble regenerating their Apaches. And, I mean, I, I read a, a report that they'd actually pushed a few against the fence because they just weren't savable. I, I don't know if that's true or not. But um, you're right. It, it, the Apache just not as, it's not as marinized or as maritime capable as, as a Tiger is. Well, you can't get it down the uh, elevator on an LHD without taking off the rotor blades. Yeah, it's a big rotor. It's a big rotor. It's a big rotor. Um, yeah. Rotor yeah. blade. Yeah. And even Boeing says, "Why would you use this on a ship?" And yeah. The US does not use the Apache on ocean vessels. That's what they've got. The marinized helicopters, like the marinized Cobra, and all that. To be fair, the US did use the Apache in Granada mm. off off a, off a carrier, but it was only a two day thing. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's really yeah. And then there was the group. Well, as you said about the the British and so on with the Apaches, but they basically used it as a way to get them there. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So given that the, uh, the the you know given that the Apache is coming in, that you know that decision has now been taken. Perhaps being practical about it, will they? Do you think they'll ever put them on the uh, on the yeah, LHDs? Or, yeah, yes. they'll have to because it's 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 part of the. L I mean, every Pacific Endeavour that the LHDs have done, they've taken Tigers. Um, it, it's part of the it's part of the order of battle for an LHD when it when it goes and does regional missions. Yeah. So they will, and they'll just have to manage it somehow. Um, whether they cocoon them, whether they do some kind of treatment on them, uh, I don't know. I don't know how they'll do it, but um, they'll have to. So, uh, and look, it's a done deal. Um, I, I think I wrote somewhere, you know, regardless of whether we think it's the right decision, it, it was done. The DSR came too late to to save the tiger, so the tiger is gone. The Apache's coming, and look, don't get me wrong. The Apache's a very capable helicopter, and especially in the manned unmanned teaming role. So once we get some really good um, um, uncrewed air vehicles in Army working with Apache, it's going to be a bit of a game changer as well. Tiger doesn't have that capability. Airbus says they could do it, but it, it's it's more than Link 16. It's a lot more than just putting a, a scabbing a Link 16 box under it. It's a lot more than that. So um, 
you know, and Apache does it out of the box. It's valid. Uh, it is valid and it's been proven and it's been proven with a lot of the stuff that we are hoping to operate with in Army in the next few years. So, yeah. Do you think it also comes back to the idea that as, as we talked about in the last segment, I mean, you know, if we're going to go into any sort of large-scale field of battle, we're not going to be doing it on our own. Exactly. So we will be presumably mm-hmm. with the Americans who are already using that exactly. platform. There'll be a much, you know, the Singaporeans have got it. The um, Japanese have got it. The South Koreans have got it. It's a much bigger pool of spares, sustainment, support, um, and just 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 common operating procedures between all the allies that we're going to be operating with in this region. So, look, from that point of view, it's a no-brainer. A t- Tiger doesn't Tiger doesn't play nicely with anyone. Yeah, and look at what we've got. We've got C seventeens. We've got uh, you know the the supers, the growlers, the F thirty fives. Then we'll have P8. Apache. Yep, P eight plus the Blackhawks, the new Mike models, UH sixty Ms. And it's as we've seen with the C seventeen. Uh, we're a forward deployed, and something went wrong. Well, we just grabbed a spare piece off the Yanks, plugged it in, and off we went. And we owed them one. Um, and then they got one off us, you know, that kind of thing when they went US down here. And yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. It's just, for me, it's frustrating because I can see a lot of benefit to Tiger and Taipan. And it seems like they're being shot in the head just as they're coming into their stride. Yeah, look, let's talk about Taipan for a moment. Um, look, I know Airbus and, and, and a lot of journos have suggested that. Um, you know, the, the problems with Taipan are because of the way the Army operates and maintains them. And look, I don't think we'll ever really know unless a whistleblower comes forward and, and tells us the, the, the true story about that. Uh, but one of the issues with Taipan has been configuration management. You know, there, there's something like 40 sub-variants of the NH-90. There's only a global fleet of 400. And there's six mm. final assembly lines. Plus our, so, our, our CAM2 software... Well, yeah. Yeah, doesn't really work the way Airbus yeah. does, and yeah. we couldn't track actual life hours on components that we yeah. were swapping madly between yeah. airframes. But if we want to do any kind of upgrade or, or configuration change to our MRHs, how do you do that when there's no exemplar baseline model anywhere in operation in the world because there's 40, 40 different versions of the thing? Um, that, and that means we've got to do it ourselves. And like you say, our systems just don't allow for that. And that's where the difficulties come in. And so, you know, Airbus has been swapping out transmission boxes and, and drive shafts and things like that, which may or may not have been brand new. They may have been refurbished. And we had no way of tracking that because, A, our system didn't allow it, and, B, Airbus's system didn't talk to our system. So we just didn't know whether that gearbox that was coming back was new or used. How many hours refurbished. ago? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... Mm. But, and, and look, there's a lot of sense in going American because you know, who, who are we most likely to be fighting with <laughs> you know, at the end of the day? And, and Blackhawks are fantastic. You, yeah. you can bang a Blackhawk down on the ground. You, you come in and, and you bang the, 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 the tail, tail wheel, wheel down. Yep. And before the mains are down, the guys are out. Yep. You're rolling along the ground and you're off again. But conversely, the MRH guys will say, yeah, but the MRH will get you there faster. It'll go further. It'll carry more people. Um, and its top owl helmet will allow you to land in a brownout without any kind of issues. You can see through the floor of the aircraft, you can see the ground, doesn't matter how much dust and crap you're kicking up. So th- there's an argument on either side, you know. Yeah, and I've I've spoken to a number of uh, Chinook pilots and Blackhawk pilots who are operating in the, uh, in the, in the sand pit, and, yeah, they said the number of times that 
they just totally lost reference to the ground in the yeah, last 50, 50 feet. Oh, a number of them just went, nope, we're landing because yeah. they were landing. They knew they were landing on a big space and they just kept a solid descent until they hit the ground. Yeah. And the guy hanging out the rear ramp on the Chinook calling, you know, 20, 10, 5, bang. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. People. <laughs> when we're talking of replacing these airframes, are we talking, uh, you know, when we come to the Taipan versus the Blackhawk, are we going one for one or are we? Yeah, pretty close. So we've got 47 Taipans, six of which were assigned to Navy. They're being replaced by 12 new Romeos. Um, and those Romeos, they're, they're nowhere near as capable as a Taipan in terms of the fleet replenishment role. They can't carry anywhere near the, the amount of cargo and stuff like that. But you can, you can pull the sonar out. You can pull the... Um, the Sonar Boys launcher out. You can pull the, the the weapon system operator console out, and you can carry half a dozen guys in the back and a bit of cargo. And the US Navy kind of does that with its um, Sierra models, which is basically a Blackhawk airframe with a with with Romeo avionics and and sensors, but bigger doors either side. They're, there's they are totally designed for getting people and gear on and off real quick. Whereas yes, yeah, so the Romeo's yeah. only got a door on on the right hand side, and there's no door on the left hand side. So that that's a that's a drawback. But you'll have a common fleet. You can put all the sonars and everything back into it, and you can have suddenly have thirty six. Romeos, but that that takes a lot of effort, and you also have all the, have to have all the gear, and I believe that the new ones are being bought with provision, but not installed gear. Um, so they're just coming like a raw airframe of a you Romeo. Could be right? Yeah, and- yeah. But the thing is, yeah, you know, of the of the twenty four Romeos we've got now, so it's a raised train sustain model. So you've got eight eight at sea at any one time, eight being maintained or or after being at sea, and eight in training. So let's say we're going to have 36, that'll be 12, 12, 12, I'm guessing, because we're going to have more surface combatants. So as long as we can generate 12 airframes to go to sea in a, in a combat configuration, I think we've got 24 kits, sonars and, and sonar boys and combat stations. So I think we'll be okay. Now, talking to some of the crew, they're like, oh, yeah, the captain says he wants a hack, so we've got to take everything out. Then he gets used yeah. it. And then we come back and we've got to be you know, doing surface warfare or, or submarine warfare, yeah. and we've got to put it all back in. And that takes hours of maintenance effort. And at sea, that's very difficult. Yeah, and also increases the chance something's going to break. So, yeah, yeah it's – it's and sure, you can take it out, but should you? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're in the hangar of an Anzac, I don't think you can because you've literally got, you know, a body width of room either side of the airframe in, in an Anzac hangar. Um, the, the hunters will be a little bit bigger. The, the Hobarts are a little bit bigger, but – you know, to be able to rip the, the dipping sonar out of that, it, yeah. it's very di- – I think you have to do it on deck. I don't know if you can do it in the yeah. hangar of an exact. And, and bad mm. luck if it's bad weather and you're in a high exactly. sea state. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, we talked a lot about uh, many aspects of the DSR so far. Is there anything else we want to cover as uh, time is a little bit against us for this episode? But, um, you know, there was – I mean, there's so much in this, isn't there, really? Well, there's the whole bases in the north. There's how we're going to k- protect our fuel supply so that we can keep our platforms running. Well – have we even got a fuel supply? Mm, we've, no. got, we've got 25 days of of aviation gas um, in Australia at any one time. And if they shut down our sea lanes, where's it going to come from? We, we, don't, we can't brew it ourselves here. No. Um, yeah. But it, the other thing it was – the, the DSR talked a lot about, you know, putting new missiles on this and, and buying new missiles, but there was really nothing new in it. Um, it was just more of the same. It, it talked about putting LRASM and JSM on the F-35, but – they aren't going to come until the Block 4 F-35. And we're not going to have any Block 4 F-35s for another three or four years. 
So it's very aspirational at the moment. You know, we can buy as many stocks as we want. Um, and actually, JSM still hasn't been ordered. We've ordered NSM, not JSMs. And it, and it is a different airframe. It's a different missile. So, you know, you can always always sort of talk about a national defence strategy in an aspirational form. But uh, the other thing with Block 4 is going to be Stormbreaker, um, which is the, the small diameter bomb Mark II, the GBU-53 something. Um, and so that's a new Raytheon 125-kilo bomb with folding wings. F-35, I think, can carry 12 internally. Um, and... Uh, tri-mode seeker, so optical ra um, radar and GPS um, and, and very clever missile. But, um, again, that's probably going to come with Block 4. Mm. Um, and the first Block 4 F-35, the new model, isn't due to come out to the end of this year, and I think the retrofits are still a couple of years away. Yeah, we're still doing Block 3, aren't we? Um, no, we're, blo we're, we're, we're Block we're, we're We are Block 3, three now? now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. But there's lo lots of little sub-blocks. There's software patches all over the place, so um, and I've lost track of the designations of all, the, all those little sub-blocks, but um, <laughs> yeah, because uh, it, it changes, um, um, and and also there's the new um, sustainment system coming as well. So, oh, not Alice too. Yeah, well, it's not called Alice anymore. It's called something else. Because <laughs> okay. um, there's always something about Alice. Yeah, but the thing is, I mean, we, we talked about long-range strike weapons before, and and long-range strike on its own is not going to defeat an adversary. Okay, it might give them pause for thought on whether they're prepared to lose a ship or two or an island base in order to achieve their goal, um, but it's not going to defeat anyone in, in, in the, the numbers we're talking about. We're talking about buying missiles in the high dozens or maybe the low hundreds. It's going to take thousands of them and hundreds of airframes, which we just can't do. We'll, we'll go through that in like, you know, a day or two, but yeah. also- and the, and the fuel, not to mention the fuel. Well, and, and also yeah. don't forget that the people we're likely to go up against have already got long range missiles that can take out Melbourne before they've even come anywhere near the Philippines. That's right. But I mean, that that's a total war situation, which is a whole different scenario. I think I, I don't think anyone in these modern days can prepare for a total war situation unless you're a superpower. We can't. We can't defend ourselves in that situation uh, um, and, and we can't really participate in that kind of war because it'll all be over before the guys even get down to Garden Island to get on the ships. So um, we're talking about a limited conflict a Taiwan-type conflict where it doesn't go nuclear or it doesn't go strategic with, or, or a South China's Yeah, tensions in the South A Ukraine-type yeah. conflict, yeah. you know, so in, in our region. Because um, that's the only thing we can possibly hope to, I won't say compete in, but be, be relevant in. Be able to stand up and say hi. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, such a cheery note. I know. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and uh, we, we, we could certainly go on and make probably another 10 <laughs> episodes, but uh, I think we'll have to uh, draw a line under it there. Andrew, it's been so great to have you back on the show. We really appreciate your knowledge, and uh, you've been at this game for a long time, uh, so much experience, and we really appreciate you being back with us. Now, you've, you've had a few changes of online presence lately. Where do we find you these days? Okay. Um, so you can find me at um, theriotact.com.au. Um, That's where I'm mainly publishing my stuff at the moment, which is Region Media's Canberra um, office. I'm doing a little bit in the Illawarra, um, a little bit on the South Coast, and we're, we're expanding into far north Queensland at the moment, and um, there's other plans ahead apparently. So uh, mainly on defence and, and public sector subjects. Um, but I, I 
I actually I did a, a thing the other day on an oyster festival down the south coast. So you know, you, you never know what, what what I'll be writing about. Now we're talking. Um, we're talking food. Yeah. Now we're talking. Any excuse to go shuck some oysters and have some good times, right? But I've got a lot of legacy <laughs> stuff which is still available on adbr.com.au, mm-hmm. which is the Australian Defence Business Review. Um, that the, the yep. magazine folded this time last year, but the website's still alive and. Uh, I'm not writing for it anymore, obviously, but a lot of it's still there, and I still refer to a lot of that stuff for, for stories I'm doing. Um, and um, I think some of my stories even pop up on Australian Aviation every now and then. They they seem to have removed my byline for some reason. I, I think that's probably a function of the back end of WordPress. I don't know, but uh, um, if you look closely, you'll probably recognise it as being a story I've written. So. <laughs> Um, well, uh, again, mate, we really appreciate you being with us. And, of course, you do have a shiny new PCDU T-shirt, so well, that means you're also one yeah, of us now. Yeah, I look forward to <laughs> rocking up for the next trade show with it on. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic, mate. Thanks for being with us, and uh, we'll have you back again soon, I'm, I'm really sure. Uh, folks, thanks for joining us for this very special edition of Playing Crazy Down Under. I'm, I really hope that you've got a lot out of it. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can either uh, pop that on any of our social media feeds, of course, or if you want to drop us a line, the email address, as always, is contact at plaincrazydownunder.com. That's where we'll finish up uh, this uh, defence-focused episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. We'll be back with another episode soon, but until then, Steve Fisher on behalf of Grant McHeron and, of course, Andrew McLaughlin, wishing you all very safe flying, folks, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Find show notes for this episode along with our contact details and a full back catalogue of shows at plaincrazydownunder.com. Drop us a line anytime with feedback, story suggestions or advertising inquiries. We'd love to hear from you. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies media production. Southern Skies Media.